Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Artificial flavors, fake news, authentic copies, and real replicas. They all sound like oxymoronic gibberish at worst, overzealous marketing at best. And so it is that sometimes the fake is indeed real, that we can appreciate and even learn or feel something by looking at a replica piece of art or enjoying an artificial version of our favorite food flavor or even fake meat. It's not just about owning a Chinese-made Louis Vuitton bag or Rolex or Mont Blanc pen. The danger, of course, is that on every level we may have so blurred the lines between fake and real that virtual reality is not something we need glasses to see. It's just the world we live in every day. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Lydia Pine. She's a writer and historian who's focused on the history of science and material culture. She has degrees in history and anthropology and a Ph.D. in history and philosophy of science and is currently a visiting researcher at the Institute for Historical Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. She's also the author of a new book entitled Genuine Fakes, How Phony Things Teach Us About Real Stuff. Lydia Pine, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a delight to have you here. Fakes have been with us for a long time. What's different today in how we look at all of this? So I think you're absolutely right that um, as sort of part of the human condition, as long as we've been making stuff, we've been making fake stuff uh, with that. And I think that one of the things that um, that comes up consistently about why fakes have taken on this particular kind of edge or urgency here in the 21st century is I think that we've begun using fake as a way to label, to judge, and to dismiss things. Uh, whether it's fake news or fake meat or fake, 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 I think that the word fake has become a bit of cultural shorthand, and it sort of allows us to to pass a moral judgment sort of all tied up in this one word. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with uh, – with genuine fakes here, is to unpack how we use the word and to sort of maybe add a little bit of nuance to to what gets what gets to be a fake and how we think about it. And what we forget is that in this world in which we pass these judgments is that fake sometimes has value, whether it's a fake flavor in a piece of candy that we enjoy or whether it's a replica of a piece of art that we still get some sense of appreciation in looking at. I, I think absolutely that I think that there's a sense that, oh, if we call something a fake, then we get to say that it's bad and that it has no value. But I think that as we begin to unpack the material lives and the history of these different objects, whether they're flavors or replicas of historical sites, archaeological sites, whether they're copies where the, the very sort of nature of the object itself is to exist as a copy, um, can really be can really be powerful. And certainly, I think in the 21st century, we're starting to see examples of consumers picking the copy or the less than natural thing over the natural thing as a way of um, as a way of demonstrating a different set of ethics or a different sort of consumer push. And I think that that's a really interesting. Um, a really interesting track for the lives of of objects to be taking here. Part of it has to do, it seems to me, with language. When we call something a copy, it has one value. If we call it a fake, another. If we call it a replica, something else. And And it really is the language that we use that's part of it. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. That whether we call something a copy, a facsimile, a replica, a... 
you know, a fake, that there's all of this sort of connotation that's tied up in it. And I think that of all of the different ways to describe something and its and its copy, its replica, I think that there isn't um, there isn't a description that carries the sort of moral judgment that fake does. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not sort of outraged that, hey, this is a replica or, hey, this is a copy. But the word fake, I think, carries um, the connotation of fraud or of deception or of artifice that isn't necessarily inherently tied up in the, in the language that we use to talk about other sorts of copies. Two areas that have changed this so much is one 3D copies that that create you know real time replicas today, yeah, and also the world of biology where where the whole idea of genetic copies and and making organ copies has a whole different connotation. I think that it's really interesting to see the 21st century really take on this question of what can we copy, how, and why. And I think that a lot of that comes out of 20th century examples um, like laboratory-grown diamonds or um, efforts to, to sort of create faux fur, uh, to be able to have objects that are just as quote-unquote good and, carry the, and can carry the sort of social cachet that an original object does, but, but sort of sidestep tricky ethical concerns. And, and the idea that a replica can materially match or be very close to materially matching its original, I think really comes out of the science and engineering of the 20th century. And in some cases, maybe it has more value because we really... I mean, diamonds are a really great example where the original, the value is an artificial value created by marketing, essentially. Yeah, it's sort of, it's one of those stories that you start to unpack this and you just think, wait a minute, this is, this is copies and artifice sort of all the way down almost. (laughs) Um, But certainly with the example of laboratory grown diamonds, I look at companies like the Diamond Foundry. Um, and others that are selling specifically laboratory-grown diamonds. That's what they sell. That's what they market. They, they are sort of appealing to people's sense that, that they're unhappy with diamonds that could be involved in conflict diamonds, or they're unhappy with the um, environmental toll of, of mining. And here, this is a diamond that doesn't carry that sort of social baggage and are very expensive explicitly marketing the copy or the replica or the non-natural thing as a more ethical alternative. And I think that that's a really interesting sort of point, a turning point in in the lives of genuine fakes. It also creates this idea of the authenticity of the fake. Yes, exactly. And I love the idea that authenticity can exist on a continuum and that as we as we unpack the material life of an object, we can watch its authenticity sort of move up and down this continuum over time. Um, and one of the really cool examples that, um, that I became acquainted with uh, doing the research for the book was looking at art that has been debunked as a fake and then eventually becomes collectible as a, as, as a fake. And it was interesting to look at these examples where the fakiness, the thing that we would say, oh, this has no value, it's just fake art, but eventually it can sort of have, it can have a value um, that comes with that, that fake 
that fakeness that was first assigned to it. And so it's a really, again, sort of this interesting idea that value can be, can be granted over time. How does it apply to literature and, 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 and kind of copying in that regard, faking Shakespeare, for example, as you talk about? Yes. So there's the example of William Henry Ireland, who in the 18th century uh, cranks out all of these truly fantastic Shakespearean forgeries. And um, some of them are some of them are just they're just unbelievable. I mean, he he comes up with an entire Shakespearean play and, you know, uh, property deeds and sort of anything and everything that you would expect to uh, see Shakespeare sign. William Henry Ireland um, creates these forgeries. Um, They're pretty quickly debunked and he sort of sort of crawls off into, you know, the pages of history as a Shakespearean forger. But over the course of William Henry Ireland's life, he he runs into financial difficulties and eventually starts forging his original forgeries and selling them as, oh, these were my original forgeries. And I love the idea that that the fakes and the forgeries can have this life that comes and this history that comes after they've been debunked. And I think that that really speaks to what we were talking about of value coming after they've been debunked, which feels kind of counterintuitive. Right. But so much of it, so much of the value that things have is as a result of of how they're seen, how they're marketed, how the marketplace views them more than any kind of intrinsic value. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it depends on their history, their cultural context. All of these things go into what we assign as value. And I think that what's interesting, though, is that that can change over time. And that if we sort of embrace that that historical contingency, I think it can help us understand how we get to where we are thinking about these different objects. In terms of man-made created objects or, or art, for example, it can change not just over time, but it could change literally overnight as an individual <laughs> might fall from grace. Yes, yes, exactly. And there's just this sort of aha moment. It sort of feels like that's the, there's almost like this dramatic reveal of, oh, wait, this is a fake. This is a forgery. This is, I've been deceived. Or somebody, it's even better usually if it's somebody that's famous has been right. deceived. That we all sort of love these stories of, of having this great reveal of an art forgery. And I just became so, so curious about, well, what happens to that piece of art afterwards? You know, after we've said, oh, this is a fake. And then I was just sort of left saying, well, now what? What happens to that art? What, do, what kind of cultural value do we assign to it? And sometimes it's none. It's, it's just, nope, that was, that was a fake, and, and we're just going to try and forget about that. But every once in a while, we do find examples of art that do become collectible and have value after their debunking. There's also the cases of, and you know, art is also a good example, where something that's been faked or forged might have more value than the original at a certain point. Yes, that in some ways, so going back to your example of William Henry Ireland that you brought up, William Henry Ireland's uh, Shakespeare forgeries are way more valuable in the collector's market than anything signed by William Henry Ireland himself that William Henry Ireland sort of has this value because he's signing Shakespeare's name. Talk a little bit about where you think this is all going with technology today that really provides so much more opportunity for all of this. Yes, you're just sort of left with this 
you know, what is real and how do I, how do I think about that? Um, and there are certain points along the way of working with this project that it felt sort of, sort of existentially fraught at what, you know, sort of what is the end point for all of this? And I think that, um, I think that what I see are going to be examples where we're going to find more things that are like the faux fur, like the laboratory grown diamonds, or the, the examples of things that can be replicated, but without the sort of problematic proveniences or contexts. And I think that we're going to see a lot more examples um, like that pop up in the 21st century. What's the downside of that, though? What's the downside of losing the value of, of, of providence, of, of, of importance for some things? I mean, that's the danger on the other side. It is. And I think that you hear a lot of a lot of pushback of people saying, well, it just doesn't feel quite right. It's not the sort of quote unquote real thing. And there's this sort of almost anxiety that if we're if we're embracing the not quote unquote real thing, then then we're somehow upholding this deception or this artifice. And I think that um, I think that as long as we and consumers and sort of culture at large can be very clear and transparent about what we're accepting and under what circumstances. I think it takes away that, that concern or that fear about being duped or deceived or, or tricked. It's no accident, I suppose, that a company that sells pre-owned luxury goods is named The Real Real. Yes, that's fantastic, actually. Um, and uh, when I was doing the research for uh, for this book, uh, one of their ads actually popped up in the elevator um, at my husband's work. And so he rode the elevator, I think, for 20 minutes, capturing the ad so that, so that I could include it. But it has, I think it comes back to this question that we were talking about, about how much how much cachet is tied up in the label of something that it's the real real that you know that it's you know it's really authentic it's really real and um and i think that 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 carries a lot of weight with it how much do you think any of this is tied up with with a general broad-based search for authenticity in anything today i think that I think that the search for authenticity is something that we see sort of across millennia of human history, whether it's, you know, in the, whether it's in antiquity, whether it's in the classical world, whether it's in the Middle Ages, what have you. I think that there is this, that there is a demonstrable search for authenticity. And I think that what we see that changes is, is what counts as authentic and how we define authenticity. That I think that the, the search for it is, is consistent but sort of what we accept as authentic is going to be something that changes. And I think that we can especially see that when we look at specific material objects, that, they, that the object is the object is the object, and we can sort of see how they're accepted or not over time. And that those can be really useful trackers for how, how culture sees, sees what counts as authentic. And of course, the world of, of virtual reality presents a whole different set of potential problems down the road. Oh, absolutely. And again, it's sort of, it's the question I think that you opened with of how do we, how do we know what's real? How do we know what's authentic? And it becomes, I think, even more tricky once you're getting away from the material and the tangible. Lydia Pine, her book is Genuine Fakes, How Phony Things Teach Us About Real Stuff. Lydia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you.